Working Class Audio is brought to you by Universal Audio, Audio Technica, Lauten Audio, Focal Monitors, and Gearsluts.com. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 171. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 171 you're listening to. Yeah, that's right. Creeping closer and closer to 175. And then, of course, 200, the ultimate milestone there. Uh, my guest today is Lucy J. Mitchell, who is a freelance sound editor and dubbing mixer located in London. She has done dialogue, sound effects, and foley editing, ADR and voiceover recording, and full post mixing. And some of her credits include BBC's Top Gear and, of course, the very, very popular show East Enders. She's worked on uh, Amazon Prime's The Collection and National Geographic's David Attenborough's Rise of the Animals. She informed me of how it all works and the workflow of that world of audio, which I am just not that completely familiar with. So it was great to have a chat with her. So Lucy J. Mitchell coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Joined today by Moto the Bulldog sitting to my right on the floor, snoring away all 80 pounds of Moto. You hear me, Moto? I'm just completely asleep. Anyways, so this summer, I will be traveling to London, Paris, and Amsterdam. If you have guest suggestions of people who are based in those cities, it would be really great to hear from you. If you head on over to workingclassaudio.com, up at the top, you will see fourth from the left currently, the uh, WCA guest suggestion form. If you click on that, there's a Google form that you can fill out and maybe you have somebody that you think would be a great guest on the show who's based in one of those cities. I would love to have them on. Uh, so let me know. Head on over there, workingclassaudio.com and any guest for that matter. And those of you that have filled that out, thank you. It's a, uh, a great place for me to go when I'm looking for guests, possibilities, and uh, I appreciate those of you that have stopped by and filled that out. While you're at it, if you are over at Working Class Audio, below each interview these days, there is a red, blue, black, and green button. Red for iTunes, blue for Google Play, green for Spotify, and black to leave a review. The black button will take you over to iTunes and you can leave a nice review if you have something nice to say. Now, if you have something not so nice to say, don't even click on that. That'll, that'll blow your computer up. That'll, that'll wreak havoc on your life. So don't do that. Something I've been interested in and um, hope to get in more into it, but just to kind of hit those of you that haven't picked up on it yet, ambisonics. This is something that seems to be really uh, catching fire, really gaining momentum. It's a, a technology, a way of capturing audio that was developed in the 70s, I'm told, and is becoming more in vogue because of virtual reality. And of course, there are a few companies that are leading the way on that. There's a few microphone manufacturers that are making ambisonic microphones. And the great thing is, is when you capture with these ambisonic microphones, those signals can then be converted to a, a variety of formats, um, including mono, binaural, uh, stereo, of course, and 5.1, 7.1. Yeah, it the list goes on. It can really be adapted to other formats. Now, a lot of people are using it for virtual reality or 360-degree uh, video uh, type presentations. Uh, YouTube's in the game. Google's in the game. 
of course, you know, Google's in the game because YouTube's in the game because they own uh, YouTube. Uh, Facebook is in the game and uh, there's a lot of players in the game. How many times can I say that in one show? Anyways, check it out. Google it. I'm going to work on uh, getting a guest on maybe in a separate uh, video presentation that we can put up on the YouTube channel. I'm very interested in it and I'm curious if any of you are deep into it. If you are and you know a lot about it, please send me an email, matt at workingclassaudio.com. I would love to know more. Thinking about some possibilities, trying to hold myself back on buying any gear yet until I kind of figure out what is the plan to uh, monetize it and create a uh, create a business model out of it as well as uh, you know have content to to provide so uh, there it is ambisonics check it out I'll uh, I'll put a couple notes in the show notes for today you can click on that and uh, do a little investigating yourself I'll share what I've found but uh, yeah it sounds really cool and it's something that uh, of course uh, is even more on my radar because the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco has just come to an end. And I was uh, lucky to meet with the WCA listener, Chris Trevino, who is located in the UP, up in Michigan, the Upper Peninsula. That's right. And uh, of course, Chris came to the Game Developers Conference to network and he reached out to have a coffee. And I, of course, had to go have a coffee because who can turn down an invitation for that? So uh, we met up at Phil's Coffee in San Francisco and um, Chris has a website that's in development right now, soundarchivist.com. Keep an eye on that. If you go there now, it says coming soon. So, But keep an eye out for it. Uh, Chris is doing some cool stuff with sound effects libraries and I think you might find that interesting. While you're at your computer and you're looking around, be sure and pay a visit to our uh, friends and uh, sponsors, gearsluts.com, and check out the Audio Life subforum that we sponsor. If you like the topics here, you'll like the topics on that forum. And also be sure and stop over to youaudio.com. That's Universal Audio's website, of course, and uh, always a good deal going on there. So be sure and check out what they have, whether it's buying an Apollo and getting a free satellite or buying a satellite and getting some free plugins. And I always like to mention that uh, WCA alum, uh, Jakir King and Vance Powell have been on there with some great videos. Be sure and check our friends out there and pay a visit to youaudio.com. Well, that's it for now for the monologue. So uh, let's move on. Let's have a good chat here with our friend Lucy J. Mitchell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I want to dig right in. I'm really curious about your journey in particular. Um, You deal in an area of audio that I don't, and so I'm sure I'm going to learn some things today, which would be great. You get a classical music degree from the University of Nottingham. Yes, I did. It's not quite the same as going and learning performance at you know the Royal Academy or anything. It was it was kind of an academic degree, so I had to I had to do performance as a module, but I learned a lot of everything else was all really academic studying you know studying harmony, studying editing, and the history and analyzing composers' mindsets and you know music and the way that music is used in visual media or whatever. Um, there wasn't that much tech stuff, but um, it was all, yeah, it's just like the study of music with a bit of performance rather than train. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of more yeah, academic. Yeah. Was it like a music history type thing? History and kind of, th- I mean, I kind of compare it to, I guess, yeah, similar to the sort of art history versus being an artist. You kind of study the composers and like when you study opera, for example, opera is very political. So you'd study all the politics behind the music and then the way they compose the music, how that reflects the story or the politics of, of the story and things like that. So it was th- those things I actually found harder because I wasn't very good at like English and things like that. But when we had to study things like, here's a piece of music, study the harmony and 
where the piece is going and why they've used certain harmonies. That was kind of what I enjoyed. And I guess it's because it's more listening and doing all that kind of thing. Where did the tech end of it come in for you? I've kind of grown up in television. My dad runs um, an outside broadcasting company. Uh, I think they're the one of the top two in the country, if not Europe. They're called CTV, Outside oh. Broadcasting. They're, yeah, they're pretty big and I, they do mostly do sport, but they do, they film things like the, the Brit Awards and the BAFTAs, you know, when they don't have cameras like in a location, they go and take their crew and their trucks and all the cameras. And then my mum was a choreographer for television when I was younger. So I used to sort of be on set while she was doing, you know, Benny Hill and Kenny Everett and all that. So I kind of was always around, I know, weird. So I was always around TV in general. So I kind of was always quite interested in that side of things, but I was obviously sort of musical and whatever. And so when I went to university, I ha- I, I kind of was interested potentially doing something sound engineering. What's like, I didn't want to do anything specifically sound engineering or audio production, just in case I didn't want to go into that. And then I had a degree in something really specific and then would probably struggle to transfer. Whereas this, you know, the music degree I described was obviously more broad, but in England we have, I don't know if you guys have it, but we have to do work experience when we're about 15, 16, which is, you know, a week unpaid. And so my dad said, oh, uh, I know someone who runs a post-production facility. You can go there, be with the runners. And I sort of sat in with the grading and the visual effects and the offline editing and stuff. And then when I went into the audio suites, I was like, can I stay here for the rest of the week? Quite like this. This is much better. So I kind of had an idea that I wanted to at that age, but wasn't a hundred percent set on it when I went to uni, which is why I didn't study it. But I kind of always had that interest just because of my dad's and my mum's sort of background and everything I'd seen with them doing pop promos and, you know, whatever. So that was kind of where the interest came. Mm-hmm. Um, and, w- and when I applied for university, actually, I, I only went to music degree, looked at music degrees that actually had a a music tech module so in you know you have said majors and minors in america but we just have you have your 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 uh your subject but you have all the different modules that sort of like classical opera 20th century 15th century you know kind of different subjects and so i only looked at ones that had a tech module because i thought well at least i'll test something out and then when it came to the tech module they picked it out of people out of a hat and i didn't get on it so i didn't actually do it so i was gutted because i wouldn't have gone for that university if they didn't have that module I mean, in hindsight, the, the module wasn't apparently, it wasn't that amazing and I didn't clearly need it, but, you know, I wanted to test the waters a little bit while I was studying, but I didn't get to do that, so, <laughs> which was a shame. I'm trying to connect the dots here where the runner position at Envy Post, that was when you were getting your work experience, right? No. So when I was at university, because I started to seriously start thinking about going into Audio Post, my dad being the sort of experienced man in the industry said, well, you know, degrees all well and good, but you need to have work experience on your CV. They won't look at you unless you have work experience. It's really important. Even if you don't learn a lot, you've been there, you've shown an interest, you pick up and you might end up not liking it kind of thing. So when I was at university, I was trying to, I was doing work experience in a couple of different post-production places in my, in my holidays so that I could see if I still wanted to, and also to get it on my CV. And then, yeah, the post envy was after uni, I basically just started applying to companies that needed runners, which in England is basically you're in a kitchen and you're making tea. You don't do anything audio at all. When you're a runner, you are literally making tea, taking, you know, at the time, distributors and tapes uh, from building to building and all that kind of thing. So it was really, it was quite good for me that you didn't have to have that much experience because I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean, I kind of, I bought Pro Tools, had a little inbox and stuff when I was at uni, but I barely used it. I used to maybe do a bit of singing and stuff, but I didn't really 
know how to use it. And I picked up a bit from work experience, but not until I went to Envy did I really start using that equipment. Just a reminder for my American audience listening, Mm -hmm. CV is a resume. Yes. Yes. Tell me about that experience of being a runner. Were they making you do anything like clean toilets or was it just primarily running? Oh, no, no, no. It wasn't. It wasn't. We had, you know, they had housekeeping and things like that. And um, in a big production company like Envy, post-production company, you are based in the kitchen. In smaller companies, a runner might sit in with the studio and do a few things and probably move up the ladder a bit quicker because they're in there and they're helping out as essentially like an assistant. But in a big company like Envy, um, you know, they do all aspects of post-production and they're, you know, they have, and now have about five, five or six buildings. I think they only had two or three when I started, you are based in the kitchen because you have, you have to serve so many people, not only the clients for their coffees and their breakfasts and all that sort of stuff, but also helping out, you know, when, when we were before tapeless, um, it was a lot of, can you take this tape up, up to, from this machine room, you know, to this tape up to this tape up and we need to take these, master tapes over to channel four and you had you know had to take tapes and things like that so it was kind of kitchen stuff and physically I guess it's called running because you run stuff around town so it's just off in London walking around with my tapes um <laughs> it was really hard I mean the job wasn't hard that's not what I mean it was hard being a runner because you know you're not earning a lot of money and you want to get into you want to be promoted but in order to do that you have to train free time in your free time so it was kind of you know long hours It was quite tough at the time, especially because I had so much to learn because I didn't know anything (laughs) at the time. Was there a sense of competition amongst all the runners? No, we were all really good friends and people I became friends with, we all moved out of the kitchen at different times and into different departments. So we kind of weren't as close, but there are definitely people who were like best friends with everyone who they were in the kitchen with. So it wasn't sort of bad competition, but there's always competition. I think there always is in something where there's not very many jobs. It's just the, the way that it is. There's not a lot of jobs out there. So there's mm-hmm. a huge amount of competition, but everyone was always really nice. We all got on really well. So, and one, like I said, once we were promoted, it was fine. <laughs> How long were you in that runner position? I was in it about eight months. Um, I think the average is about a year, which when you're in the kitchen seems like a really long time, but at the same time, it depends on what's above you because part, I guess, partly money, but also the machine rooms are small and there's no space for loads of people or there might not be you know I had to wait for someone to either leave or be promoted before I could be promoted so sometimes it wasn't necessarily that you weren't good enough to be an audio assistant but they just didn't need an audio assistant so you didn't move up Uh, after me there was a guy who was really really good in the machine room he took quite a long time to get in the machine room but not because he wasn't good but because there just wasn't a role available and I'm sure that's the same in a lot of industries and a lot of jobs but yeah I was there for about eight months well uh, tell me about the next phase and tell me about uh your role there? So I went into the machine room, which is, I guess, the old school sort of tape up kind of situation. Nowadays, they don't really use tapes that much. So I think it's doing all the sort of deliverables. And essentially, you're, you're assisting and helping out all the mixers. We have a little intercom thing and they call through and say, well, at the time, it's like, can you set me up with this tape? I need to load this in. I need to lay this back. Yeah, when I was in there, again, it was you were learning to, I was kind of learning to use Pro Tools as well, because machine room you're not at the beginning you're doing all the tape stuff and it's not that much pro tools but we have as much as I hated it we had night shifts and that's when I really got to try my hand at pro tools because we had to do all the deliverables and do all the tape load-ins and all the wav playouts 
and all the you know loading all the umphys well, AFs now I guess but you know prepping all the sessions so the editors and mixers don't prep their sessions they get prepped by the audio assistant so that's and that was mostly on the night shift so that's when I got to learn Pro Tools so as much as I hated night shift it did help me get faster at the Pro Tools side and what was good for me is because you know I gained a really close relationship with the producers because you know you if, if a client called up with a problem and they'd say they'd hand it over to me and then I'd have to deal with the problem so the producers when I eventually moved up to editing the producers all sort of knew me and trusted me because I had done quite well in the machine and I kind of was like a I got made sort of this sort of head role which now is an official role but it wasn't quite there when I was in it and I was kind of the go-to person so when everything went wrong I was the one who had to deal with it but again if things went well it was quite nice for me because I was in charge <laughs> was the workload different at nighttime versus the, the daytime uh yeah I mean at nighttime it was the majority was prepping these sessions and loading in tapes and back in the day when I first started it was all loading in tapes so it would be you have an hour-long program so it takes an hour to load in and so your night shifts would be really long because you sometimes you might be working to digicut pictures and then you had to load in for the final mix they wanted to clients would want to use the graded pictures and the final master pictures so you'd have to load in like five hour-long tapes for one session because they've got five episodes or something and it, it sometimes it was, it was really long and then during the day it was it was less of the set, sorting stuff out it was um but it could be really, really busy because you'd have to do all the QCing, um, which again kind of gave helped give you a good ear for when you moved into editing and mixing because you were picking up on not necessarily just technical problems, but you know, oh, you can't hear this or this is out of sync and things like that. So that kind of prepared you for the studio as well. But you had to do a lot of that. It was annoying when you got it on night shift, but you do that during the day and you have to assist the people at the time and you have to do all the deliverables and deal with the clients and get everything out make sure the tapes are labeled correctly and all the dvds of wabs are labeled correctly or at the time da88s are all labeled and you know all that sort of stuff so you know all the all the new kids don't know what these things are that's right yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. was it was it difficult to have a social life uh in that position working in the machine room yeah massively i have much better social life now than i did i mean i'm freelance now that's probably why this is just in one company. I don't know what other places are like, but we had, you know, an 8 a.m. shift till 5. There was an 11 till 8 shift. There was a 1 till 10 shift. And then there was a night shift and a 9 till 6 shift. So you're always on shift work. And then obviously, if your friends are in the machine room, you didn't get to go out for drinks with them because they were on a different shift to you because you're working in the same machine room. So that was a bit of a shame. And then obviously, like my friends kind of just got used. They always thought I was working. So stopped kind of inviting me to stuff, really, because they're like, oh, she's probably working. Now I'm like, no, I'm free call me I'm free I'm always free um but it was really hard especially because again with the same thing from going from the kitchen to machine room to to move up you have to train in your free time you can't the place I was in such a you know very good facility that had a lot of work um a lot of really high profile work and you didn't have a lot of downtime while you were working you were mostly working all day you know, if you weren't, you could maybe go and sit in and watch someone edit. But really, it was working all day. So you don't you really have time maybe in a lunch break or after or before work to go and sit in in the studio and watch someone else mix. So you'd have to or edit whatever you were wanting to do. So, you know, I would have these odd shifts and I'd be spending time outside of my shift to learn the skill to then move up. So it was it was a lot of really hard work. But and it was, you know, it was really, really difficult. But at the same time, I, I learned a lot and I owe everything to that company. So, what came after? What what got you out of the machine room? One of the dubbing mixes 
who for some reason was doing a trap play, um, an edit, sound edit, I can't remember why. She came in and said, oh, um, I'm really busy. Can someone, does anyone want to add some atmospheres to this film? And so I just turned around and I was like, yeah, I'll do it. And I was like, you know, it was a machine room assistant kind of not, kind of think, but doing some training going, yeah, I could do that. It's just atmospheres and she'll, she'll tell me if it's wrong because it's obviously her name would be on it. So she would then check it. And so I kind of start, started doing that, sort of helping out the editors if they, you know, saying, oh, do you need an extra pair of hands? Like I'll stay for an extra round, do some footsteps or, and then after a while, I, same thing sort of happened with voiceovers that, like, you know, someone would call in sick and then the producer would call down saying, does anyone know how to do this? And can someone, so it was kind of, I tried to jump at any sort of opportunity. And then while I was in the machine room, they started just booking me on track lays, um, and edits and sort of booking me on voiceovers. So it got to the point where eventually I was kind of 50-50ing and then we had a discussion with management to be like, you know, we can move you into proper position and stuff. So it was kind of, it was nice because I think you don't, it's always that terrifying thing, especially in this industry where you have to be able to do the job to be promoted. It's not like in an office where you can be promoted and then like figure it out. You kind of have to be able to do it. So in order for them to know you can do it, you need to do stuff while you're not doing that job, if you see what I mean. Tell me some of the projects that you were working on in that transition out of the machine room where they were, you know, bringing you in on more projects. What were they like? What, what kind of titles are we talking about? I still wasn't doing like the top gears and the voice and the sort of the big names. Cause I, I'm assuming, well, I'm assuming they probably didn't want to use someone so junior on those at the time. But, um, I think my first ever, the one I helped Mary on was called cocaine unwrapped. And it was a one-off feature documentary. I think it only, I think it went to cinemas, but it was mostly a festival uh, feature. Uh, and then I did a documentary on graffiti called Graffiti Wars. I, again, I helped out with just the atmospheres, I think, and maybe a few effects for a, a mixer called Ross, who is brilliant. And he has also gone freelance in the last few years. And I started doing a lot of um, sound design things, which was odd. There are lots of factual uh, programs that they do at Envy, which have visual effects to explain stuff, you know, like, I don't know, machines kind of exploding and things like that. And that was done as like a whole separate session of just the sound design because there'd be sort of like 20 minutes of solid graphics throughout the program. And somehow I got called, I don't know how or why, but I got called onto that while I was in the machine room just to do those sound designy bits, which was quite nice, which meant when I then moved up, I was doing a lot of that. When did you leave Envy? 2015, March, okay. yeah. At that point, did you go freelance? Yes. So it was kind of, there was a, a kind of, mixture of things and why I left and it was really really hard because at the time I was quite I'm sure the company and and to be honest my family from was very envy I was very and you know I was I was very much a yes man at that company and I was very committed to them and I you know I loved being there and it was really it was a really hard decision for me to leave but I was um from doing all the sound design jobs that I had been doing at envy and then the occasional sort of doco drama I don't know if you have them in America where they've got the drama reconstruction stuff oh, yeah. so it's a documentary and then they have lots of drama like sequences to explain stuff when we started doing that I kind of liked the sort of storytelling through the sound and I kind of was starting to get interested in doing more sort of drama but most most of what Envy did was was factual factual television and documentaries and also at the time my my mum wasn't well and um, I had to keep sort of swapping shifts and stuff to sort of help my dad out and I had to sometimes luckily it was when things were getting better on computers so I could work from home a little bit but um, I kind of wanted more flexibility it seems like we had flexibility with the shifts but I really needed to be able to manage my time a bit better to help out my dad because he was he's now stepped down as um, as CEO but he was still at that time very much 
at work every day and I you know he took a lot of time off but I was trying to I need I wanted to be at home and help mum so it was kind of a mixture of wanting to do different types of programming plus wanting a bit more freedom of to manage my time a bit I probably would you know I still was saying yes to loads of things and working weekends and doing late shifts as I was but at least I could manage it a bit better instead of like say well I've got these jobs but it's not delivering till this time I can do this that evening and see mum in the morning or you know things like that rather than having to be at work at 10 or 9 so it was yeah that was kind of the reason it was those two reasons for leaving and it was horrible I hated it I hated leaving but but uh, from a work-life balance perspective, it probably really was quite helpful that you could set up a, a home mixing rig to do things, I assume. Yeah. I mean, it was really good. I mean, mum's a lot better now, which is great. But at the beginning, obviously, didn't have many clients because as an editor, you don't necessarily meet a lot of directors and producers because you are in the you do the editing and it's the mixer who deals with the clients. So it's not like I had a lot of contacts leaving. I didn't have people I could just call up and say, hi, I'm now freelance. So... I, you know, Envy, I, I did a bit of freelancing for Envy because I had just left and presumably they didn't know I was going to leave. So that was quite good for me. And I was still doing weekends and doing long days, but I could choose which ones. And also I probably wouldn't have married my husband because he's a, a musical director and he does a lot of evenings because he teaches, you know, does choirs and shows and gigs and stuff. So daytime was always quite useful for us. So me having, you know, he works every Sunday and does gigs on Saturday nights and stuff. So actually me working a Wednesday through to a Saturday was good because Monday and Tuesday I'd see him or whatever. So it was quite, in that sense, it's worked really well. And same even now working from home and having the home studio, he's just at home and he, and it's nice because we actually see each other more than if I was doing a normal shift. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Once you went freelance, and mm. I understand that you would do some work for Envy, mm -hmm. how did you get clients? What what was the process of establishing yourself as a freelance person? When I, I handed my notice in, and I can't remember what my notice period was, to be honest, but in that time, I basically emailed all the big post-production companies that were you know similar to, to Envy, so sort of Halo and The Farm and Evolutions and stuff. So they were basically either doing the farm and stuff do sort of drama do dramas as well but they also do the factual side so I kind of thought if I get in there on the factual side then I can show them I can do that and then they'll hire me for drama um and so I basically just kind of wrote up my CV because I didn't have one because I didn't need one <laughs> and I sort of had a bit of my machine room stuff on there because also that does some people quite like if you have that sort of background in the in the tape hop thing because it just means that you you know a bit more about that sort of stuff and then had sort of my page and sort of select jobs. I couldn't write all of them because in um, a lot of factual television, you just do one app, one program a day. So I have hundreds of programs. So I couldn't put them all, all on there. So I sort of chose the important ones. And I suppose that's what got my foot in the door, which is what I was trying to say before about Envy being so great because they did really high profile jobs. So if I went to a company with my CV, I wouldn't have to explain what all the programs were. They'd just see the names and they'd know what they were. So that was really useful. But I basically just wrote an email and would say to people, uh, just leaving Envy after being there for six or seven years, um, this is my CV. I was broadcast hotshot, which was, um, there's a magazine in England called uh, Broadcast Magazine. Mm -hmm. It's a huge industry. You have to subscribe to it. And it's a big industry magazine. And they do a sort of top 30 under 30 thing you know like the Forbes under 30 thing but maybe not quite as high profile <laughs> but it's 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 you know and they have all the different sections they have writers directors uh, I think there's mines under craft and there's business and stuff I think the way it works is people nominate the companies nominate 
their people and then they get sort of chosen and stuff. So I got, I was that in 2013, which was amazing. And it was like a big feature in the magazine. And so that's kind of one of my leading things on my, on my email saying, this is something I did. I was acknowledged for my, my work two years ago, whatever it was. So that was kind of in that email kind of thing instead of saying these are the jobs that I worked on I'm really interested in doing more drama and animation stuff but I'm also just as happy to do factual stuff and then what I would always say is can I meet for a coffee or can I come in and meet you because I kind of find that CVs even if they find your CV impressive that it's very easily forgotten and I feel like when they meet you they find it's a lot easier for people to remember you when they're busy so my main thing was just meet as many people as I could because I'm not Despite being able to talk quite clearly very well and talk a lot, I'm not good in networking situations in mm. like groups of people. It's like my biggest fear. I hate it. And I I, I get, my husband forces me to go to some of them. But I, <laughs> I really, the ones I only, ones I really go to now are the audio only ones because I feel like I have a lot more to say. I feel like at the ones where there's producers and directors and stuff, I find it really hard. And also I don't want to go up to a group of people who are already talking and go, sorry to interrupt, but hi, I'm Lucy. Like I just find it, horrible whereas this way it's still networking but it's like one-on-one and I can when I meet them and I'm really chatty they probably don't think that I'm not good in groups but I if unless I know who they are and can like target them in a room Mm -hmm. I really struggle so I don't I don't really go to a lot of those things I should but I just find it really difficult and end up just feeling really awkward and then just coming home feeling upset so I don't really yeah, the audio ones, I can see someone, like I went to an awards thing. So the person who won the award, I knew his name because he won the award. So I went up to him and said, hi, because I knew who he was. So that's fine. But yeah, I mostly just email people want, and sort of say, can I meet you? And then I met a lot of people even before I left Envy. Didn't get a lot of jobs straight away, but I met a lot of people. And I think that's what was important. And then every sort of couple of, maybe every three or four months, I send out an email going, hi, this is what I've been up to. Here's a link to my IMDb or my website, which I then made later on. And so that A, they remember my name if they've forgotten and I'm just in their brains a bit more. And also if I've done something impressive, then they know about it straight away because not everyone's going to go to a website if they haven't got time. And that's how I tend to get a lot of my work. And sometimes people contact me and I haven't actually met them, but they've got emails from me every three months. So suddenly remember who I am. <laughs> so it seems to work. It might annoy people, but it seems to work. How do you find the the difference in your survival as, as an audio professional when you were working at a facility versus your survival now as a freelancer? How do they compare? It's um it's a lot more stressful because I mean, for example, I've just been working and I've done about three work three three or four weeks where I've had a lot of work and I now have nothing at all. I have a feature doc that I'm might be mixing for someone who's going to contact me this week at the end of April. And I think I just got an email today about doing one episode of something in two weeks. And that's it. That's all I've got. So I could easily not work for the next six months. I have no idea. I'd like to think that I would, but it's, it is a lot more stressful, but at the same time as a freelancer, like I do earn more money because you obviously have higher day rates than you would if you were working facility, but it's all dependent on, I think for people wanting to do it, it's dependent on a, how proactive they are, like, because I'm quite proactive in trying to get, like, I do a lot on the internet and a lot on, you know, LinkedIn and Twitter and and my website and stuff. But, you know, it depends on what kind of person you are. My brother is very, very good at what he does, but he doesn't like being, he's now in a full-time job and he's the happiest he's been. He's probably not earning as much money, but it's 
he likes stability. It's the stability and the it's the not worrying kind of thing. It, it can be quite stressful. And especially then if you also double book something or you book something and then one of them moves back and then you're suddenly overlapping and you're like, oh my God, <laughs> which is quite stressful sometimes, but you kind of got to figure it out, deal with it. <laughs> Good transition there about uh, rates. So you charge by the day or do you sometimes charge by the hour? Depends what the uh, what the job is. If it's something that's factual television, like, as I said before, it tends to be uh, a day or two or three per program. So for that, I tend to charge per hour because it just might it might be something that takes me six hours if it's just talking heads and some music, or it might take me twelve hours for four days. It, so that I tend to do per hour. Voiceovers I do per hour, and then if it's yeah, if it's a drama or a film I'll do per day. Mm-hmm. And then depending on how many weeks it is, that day rate will then also change. People sort of say, what's your day rate? And then I'll say what my day rate is. And then they might say, well, we can't afford that, which normally happens. And then I'll go, can you do this? And that's, I kind of just go, yeah, sure. Obviously not if it's nothing, but it, it they often will say, we can only afford, say, X amount a week. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, okay, well, if I do eight hour days or 10 hour days, that kind of works out. Because I'm used to 10 hour days. That's how my brain works. But People might be thinking eight-hour days in terms of their pay. So it just depends on what the job is and also what the budget is because it could be someone like an independent film, but they could have a really high budget. But you could easily find someone who's in what I call a proper facility who hasn't got a high budget. So it it just depends on I sort of say my thing and they sort of then say, yes, we can afford that or no, we can't. And then it's kind of back and forth a little bit. It was quite hard figuring out rates though. I I did find that quite difficult because I had no idea. I didn't really like doing it. What are the tools you use and how does it work? Um, tools, I'm, I don't really have anything snazzy, I guess, because I kind of learned in-house and sort of learned on whatever was around. I'm not really one of those sort of boys that's like loves all the different hardware and all the different equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recently bought a new audio interface because I had an old M-Box that was just not working. But yeah, I've just got a new Focusrite um, Scarlett. I also called 89 20 partly because I'm hoping to exp- we're, um we've got a detached garage in the garden which we're going to try to convert into a studio if we have the money next year so I kind of thought well I'll get an interface that I can then upgrade to 5.1 if and when I need to do that so I've got that with my little mini Genelec speakers I've got a tiny little um avid mix uh, artist mix uh, to be honest, I don't. When I'm editing, I rarely use that. Maybe just for levels, but it's only really when I do short films or when I'm mi- pre-mixing for some for a factual show that I'll use that. I I don't use it a lot actually. And then yeah, I'm just about to buy two like dual monitors because I find it when I'm using plugins, I hate having everything in my way. So I'm in the process of looking at new new um getting dual dual monitors. But I have I haven't got anything snazzy. I've got I've recently upgraded to Pro Tools HD because I was doing more data editing. Uh-huh. And the reason I did that is because Eddie Load, I don't know if you've heard of it, is a program for dialogue conforming. When, you're, when you've got to expand all the different microphones, it kind of links to all your audio source, um, your uh, audio rushes, and it kind of links to everything and um, does like a conform from your rushes. And that requires HD. So I upgraded to use that. But also it's actually really helped when I've had to have you know, I was doing a program and they said, oh, we've just changed the pre-titles or the um, or the next time tease. So can you just slot this in? So being able to have two videos, because the normal Pro Tools, you can't have more than one video 
on your timeline oh. and you also can't move your video so you have to, if you want to move a video to a different time on your timeline you have to delete it and import it again so hd although i only uh, upgraded it for one reason has actually been really useful for multiple reasons <laughs> so huh. that's what i've got and it's good because it's now it's you know it's more powerful so when i do more mixing it's sore and my sound design stuff it's better so when somebody sends you a project does it come in as as an omf file or does it just come in as how does it come yeah so they'll i'll send they'll send me a, usually a quick time of some sort an h264 or something uh and then i will have an af which has usually everything in and then as i said if it's if it's dialogue editing it's you have to it, have to use eddie load to link to all the audio rushes which i will usually have on a drive and that will just import just the files that you need and then you can just you know go through which microphones you want get rid of them and then do, i usually do like a save copy in so it's just just the uh microphones i've used mm. but yeah it comes in and say af we need obviously need um handles so that you can pull out especially factual stuff especially for their dialogue so you can pull things out and get their silence in between things um, but actually for the music editing i find really useful having really big handles just so that you can if something's been edited and you want it to work a bit more with the phrasing or you need like a crash to happen on a shot change or you know normal avid can't as well as far, it might have changed but when i learned about this it didn't um didn't edit you could only edit to like a frame or half a frame accuracy or something on actual picture avid whereas pro tools obviously you have subframes so even if they've done a really good job editing sometimes it was ever so slightly off and having being able to pull out the music's really useful and especially if it comes into like loads of singing and the client goes I don't want any lyrics. You've got to then pull it out just to get an instrumental bit or something. So I find having really big handles for the for the music really useful. So yeah, that that always comes in like that. And then, as I said, if it's a factual thing, I'll probably get like a day. Well, what, I, I guess normally between one and three days or if it's a really busy thing with like lots of different locations and they'll give me more time because obviously you've got to do the backgrounds for like India and wherever. There's a lot more stuff going on and probably more mopeds and rickshaws and stuff <laughs> yeah. but um yeah uh, but then for something else if it was for a drama or a film you'd obviously get get a lot longer lucy j mitchell here on the working class audio podcast we're going to take a pause here and i want to tell you about our friends over at audio technica releasing and shipping of course uh, a pair of headphones that i mentioned a few episodes back uh that's and I'm talking about the ATH-M50XBB. These are a limited edition headphone that are beautiful blue-black color. So if you're tired of black and you want something a little snappier, a little cooler looking, check these blue-black headphones out. I'm going to put a link in the show notes. You can actually buy them on the Audio-Technica website directly, $169 US. And uh, you can just add it to your cart there. Next thing you know, they'll be at your doorstep. So check it out at uh, audio-technica.com, the ATH-M50XBB, blue-black headphones, limited edition. Let's get back to it with Lucy J. Mitchell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. When it comes to the client's content, when you're done mm -hmm. with a project, do you hold on to it in case they call you up and say, oh, we forgot something or we need a change. How long do you hold on to the content or do you archive their content? Um, I do. I, I archive it, but obviously I can't suddenly steal any of their sync recording and use that somewhere else. I would never do that. But right. I hold on to it, uh, A, for that, as you say, for that reason. Obviously, I'm handing it over to someone who's then going to be mixing it if I'm 
editing. So usually the mixer would just make a change maybe, but I've had, I've had times where the mixers called me up and said, oh, you've missed effects on this bit. I'm really up against it. Can you just add some more stuff or whatever? Which is, and that's only like two days later. So I definitely would hold on to it for a couple of weeks. And then I tried to put them onto a drive, although I've lost my drive. <laughs> I don't know where I've put it. I've been moved house recently. So I'm hoping it's in one of our drawers somewhere. But if I'm doing a big sound design job and I know that I've, I can remember something that I've done, it's good to be able to go back to that project and just take some of the stuff that I've done and, and kind of rejig it. Or even just sound effects, you know, a lot of the sound design sound effects that you have, you know, the boom libraries and all that, mm-hmm. they have they have so many amazing sounds, but you've if I can remember a job where I've used some really good ones, I want I want to use that exact machine mechanical like clickiness or like I want to use that type of whoosh and I can't remember the names of it. It's good to be able to get it go back to my old project and go, well, that's what I you know, I've used that and I can use elements of it I would obviously never do the exact same thing because that's ridiculous but I would use elements of it so I, I find that quite useful having them because I did it I did it um I did a short film I started it a couple of years ago and then the graphics the visual effects got delayed because they were amazing visual effects people so they got quite busy and then when they came to do the final mix I actually was too busy so they handed it over to someone else but um it's a set in space it's called pulsar it's actually just about to be released but it's um it's all set in space on a spaceship so i was i had done a program at envy uh that was called i can't remember what it's called but it was set in space and we had a lot of um sound we had like a a kind of black hole impl- imploding thing mm-hmm. and you know that sort of those sort of sub kind of implodes kind of thing and i really like those sounds but i wanted to i wanted to i didn't obviously just grab it and stick it into this short film but I used some of the same sound effects that we used in that because I couldn't remember the names of them so that again that was quite useful just to have it but yeah I would never necessarily use the same thing twice but it is good to have it and especially if they come back and say we had to delay the mix we've lost your project if you still got it and I go yeah it's on my drive so yeah I try to keep them for as long as I can I'm just curious like so you're you're doing editing on a project but then you'll hand stuff off to somebody who's mixing a project can you like Mm -hmm. start at like the person who finishes the project which i guess is the mixer the mixer yeah and then work your way down Uh, i guess it depends on what you're doing so if it's on factual television depending on how large the project is and the budget is usually if it's just like a normal documentary or normal factual television you'll just have one mixer and then one editor or track layer it's sometimes called here. And then that person, so as as the track layer, I would edit, I'd bring in the AAF, I'd edit the music and the dialogue that, and this, all the sync that's been sent from the original offline picture edit. And then I'd add all my apps, all the atmospheres, as much as they, they, you know, there's often effects put in from the picture editor, but obviously we want to book because you never know whether the director wants that just so they can hear what it sounds like or whether they definitely want that sound so it's always best to fill everything and then they can always mute it off if they don't want it it's a lot quicker for someone to just mute something than it is for them to trawl through sound effects and add something else Mm -hmm. so we have to fill everything fill all the atmospheres and fill all the sound effects obviously you can't put in documentaries every single footstep in and I guess it's not usually that important but if there's a shot where there's just music and voiceover and someone's walking down the street, then I'll put their footsteps in. Or like if there's a close-up on someone's feet, I'll obviously put footsteps in on that because that'd be weird if you didn't hear it. Um, but you have you have to manage your time. On some documentaries, you've got loads of time and you can put loads of millions of effects on. Um, so for that, for that would be, I would 
put everything together. And then when I give it to the mixer, I give him the session. And then the mixer, depends what order they do things in. Um, a lot of the mixers I know will kind of have everything else, everything quite low and just start with the dialogue almost clean so so that they can hear everything. Because, you know, if, if, the, if you mix everything up with all the music and everything loudly, you might miss stuff in the dialogue. And if the client suddenly wants to get rid of a track of music, you need to make sure that your audio is good enough without the music. So people tend to mix the dialogue kind of quite clean, like so they can like on its own. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, each to their own, it depends what you're doing really. If you know the music's never going to go. Uh, like when I mix EastEnders, I, so I mix EastEnders and I mix everything up and kind of do it. I do all the music and the dialogue together because the music is diegetic there. So it's like music in the pub or music on the street. So I know it's not going to necessarily go. And I know it's got a lot of background sound because they're in a pub or in a market. So I kind of, I don't mix the dialogue clean on EastEnders, but on a documentary, I probably would because you don't know what they're going to remove. They might just want music and voice or they might want background sounds and voice and no music. So kind of do that. And then, yeah, they kind of do all the levels and any sort of sound designing stuff, any EQing, any noise reduction, which can probably be done a lot more these days because of um, RX, which is so brilliant. But they all people use Cedar and they use, there's a lot of really good noise reduction um, plugins. It's not just, not just isotope, but uh, yeah, they have to do all that, which you probably need quite a lot of in documentaries versus I guess, scripted work, because you'd hope that scripted work on set, if you can't hear it or it's really bad quality, then they would hopefully re-record it. Whereas when you're doing a documentary and interviewing someone, Mm -hmm. you don't have that control necessarily. But when it's a drama, it's a bit different. So with a drama or a film, because it's it's a lot longer, uh, it's kind of split up a bit more. So you'll have, so I do just dialogue or just sound effects and atmospheres. Usually the music is kind of often composed, but otherwise you have a music editor and then obviously, if you've got Foley, you've got the Foley recording session and you've got the Foley editing and the Foley mixing. And it just depends on how it's done. And then you have like an effects, sound effects premix separate to the dialogue premix. And then it all gets brought together for the final mix. So the films and the dramas are slightly larger scale with more time. And usually the dialogue and the effects are being done at the same time because otherwise it will take too long. Um, I was doing a job where... I was on a film and I was doing the sound effects and I had six weeks to edit the sound effects and then a week, yeah, a week uh, pre-mixing, effects pre-mixing and then a week, two weeks final mixing. And when I was doing the six weeks of editing, the dialogue editor was also doing six weeks of dialogue editing and the Foley session was being recorded and then I got sent the Foley session a week before the mix to then pull that into my sound effects session and then see if anything was missing, if if we had done if we've covered everything because for a film when you do your international I don't know I'm not sure what everyone knows but if you have your in, if you do international versions and you're changing the language you need to literally cover everything because anything that was picked up by a microphone any movement or feet feet or door slamming won't be there when you take out the microphones so you have to cover absolutely everything so those things take longer because there's more to do do you see what I mean it's not necessarily they want more detail than documentaries. Yeah. Just, it requires it because they will be taking off the dialogue, which has a lot of action in their microphones. Whereas the documentaries quite often there, I would assume it's mostly subtitled if they're doing a foreign version or what well, they might not, but usually it would be a foreign voiceover and then subtitles, but it depends. The Pro Tools sessions mm. are going between a lot of different people. 
And so are there just rules of the road that, so to speak, that everybody adheres to to make sure that if you send, if, if somebody's sending you a session or a piece of audio, are there do's and don'ts about interfacing? No. I mean, what I tend to do is if I'm working with a mixer that I've not worked with before, I'll usually get in touch and say, is there a template that you want me to stick to in terms of track layout or plugins that you want me to use? Obviously, if I don't have them, then that's a thing. Or if, if I'm going to be using an inserted plugin, which I don't do that often, but if they want me to pre-mix it, I might do check that they've got it because otherwise they won't be able to, to use it. And you know, some people like the fewer tracks uh, the better so that they don't have, you know, 500 tracks. Some people prefer things to be spread out. So it's easier to visually see where something is. Like if you've got one person's feet on their own track, then you know exactly where to go. But some people just want fewer tracks. So you kind of move everything up. So I tend to talk to the mixer to ask them what they want. I mean, I, t- I think most, I tend to send my sessions 24 bit, but uh, no one's, if I've accidentally done it 16 bit, no one's come back and said anything. If your picture sessions usually start at one hour or 10 hours, so your session usually is like, oh, 5,800 or 958. But if it's wrong when you import stuff, you can just change change your start time on Pro Tools. So I haven't really come across anything that's a problem. But I do we have I do have to clear, you clean the, the sessions because otherwise they're too massive. So if you've, if you've lo- loaded in loads of effects and then not use them or you've deleted loads of microphones... It's good to then remove them from the session and do a save copy in. Otherwise, the sessions can just be absolutely ginormous. <laughs> so that's yeah. quite useful. And yeah. sample rate, obviously, I'm, I'm, well, I'm assuming it's all 48K. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I've not come across anyone who's required higher. Being a freelance person uh, and dealing in audio, what's your relationship with money? Do you find yourself a good business person along with being a good creative person? Yeah. I'm. I mean, I'm quite... You'd never think this from my bedroom, but I am quite an organized person. I'm I'm messy, but I'm organized. I don't know if that makes any sense. Like I, my my mm-hmm. my desk and my bedroom is always messy, but in terms of work, I'm always quite organized. You know, I've got a spreadsheet, a spreadsheet of all every time I send an invoice, I've got a spreadsheet written partly so I can see how much I've earned, so I know how much tax I might be paying. But yeah, I have a spreadsheet of everything, and then I can also I tend to color code invoices so I'll have my invoice will be green I'll, when it, when I've sent it I've changed it to amber and when I've been paid I change it to red so that if I go through my invoices and it's not been paid I can see straight away and I can chase them saying you haven't paid me my invoice kind of thing um I'm I am quite organized in that sense I mean I invoice usually straight away my husband takes about two months to do his invoices and I hate it I'm always like <laughs> do your invoice do your invoice and he ends up invoicing for like four months and one go and then Get, you know, suddenly feels like he's really rich. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'm quite organized. It was weird because I didn't know how to do it. So I had to look up invoicing templates and speak to my mum because she was a freelance choreographer and dancer. So I had to sort of say, what did you do? And I know obviously back in the day, it's very different, but in general, mm-hmm. in the sort of the general sense of it isn't different, you know? And if I've ever had to chase anyone, I spoke to my dad saying, I need to chase someone. They haven't paid me. What should I say? And, you know, they've both been really helpful, especially my dad actually, you know, running a business and coming from a management point of view. Like when I went to leave Envy, I sort of said to him, what do I say? How do, you know, I don't want them to think it's anything they've done because it wasn't anything to do with Envy that I left. And I really wanted, I wanted a good relationship with them. And my dad is always, he's was always really useful. So going freelance, whenever I've had any sort of businessy questions, he's been quite good 
good with that. And I've had to think about phrasing and who do I, who do I ask this to in a company? Is it the account person? Is it the HR person? Like, you know, that kind of thing. So I, I think I've dealt with it quite well. I'm used to it now. Now it's just, mm-hmm. it is what it is. But sometimes I forget and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't invoiced for this thing like four weeks ago. <laughs> but, you keep track of your invoices on a spreadsheet? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm a massive geek. <laughs> what do you use to create your invoices? Why not Word? Because I don't have Word anymore. The free rubbish version of Word. I literally just do it on a, on like a Word kind of document thing. And then I send it as a PDF. Not that anyone's going to change it, but just so they can't. I export right. it as a PDF. It's, that's actually, that was something that I think my dad said to me. He said, look, no one's going to change it, but just in case. I I don't I don't color code the spreadsheet. I color code my actual invoices in my folder. You see what I mean? So okay. the actual folder that has the PDFs in them. And I've got sort of my 2017, 16, 15, and it's all like per company and everything's all laid out. Massive geek. <laughs> so. No, I mean, I think that that is absolutely critical is that, I mean, s- some of us, you know, really get geeky and stress out about the organization of a Pro Tools session, but we don't do the, We don't give the same attention to detail mm. to our invoicing, yeah, and in in our business management aspect of being an audio professional. Mm. So I'm always curious to hear, like, what do you do? How does this work? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I do it the same as anyone in audio. It's quite. It's. I think money and business stuff is quite hard to talk to because it's you're essentially talking to competition, and it's always a bit awkward. I don't know. I've never really spoken to anyone about how they do stuff. It's kind of made it yeah. up. <laughs> I don't know why I always do this, but like I rely on this company called Simple Invoices, mm-hmm. which I pay probably, I think I pay 12 bucks a month mm-hmm. for. Stop that. And, and they, you know, it's, I go there to check on invoices and you could see when somebody's opened your invoice. Oh, that's good. That's really good. Actually. And, and so like, you know, if you call them and say, Hey, I'm, you know, I'm chasing up an invoice. Mm-hmm. They might say, Oh, I don't think we ever got it. And you could say, okay, well, I see that it was open, uh, you know, four weeks ago. <laughs> so yeah. I think somebody might've gotten it. I mean, Can I know we- that, I know that some people have things on their invoices that say, if it's not paid within this much, you owe me this much, you know, I'll add on interest or, um, something that I haven't done that I was thinking of doing, which is, uh, like a cancellation fee if you cancel something mm. less than X amount of hours. But I'm always nervous to do that because I don't want to, I'm still essentially, I've only been freelance for three years and I'm still always doing a lot of like my first jobs for companies. I don't want to start off, you know, on the wrong side. So I, I, mm-hmm. I, haven't, I haven't actually done that. And to be honest, I've not really had a problem with it anyway, but I know that people do do that. If people want to find out more about you, is it best to go to lucyjsound.com? Yes, lucyjsound.com. But I try to update that a lot. I write, I put a lot of stuff on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for being on the show. It's great to hear your perspective and hear about your journey and also hear about how you do things in your world of audio because it, it is very different from how I do things in the world of primarily music. So it's fascinating to to hear about all this and I appreciate your your time today. Oh, thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. Lucy J. Mitchell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great education there to find out more about that world of audio, especially if you're a music-oriented person. So thanks again to Lucy for coming on. We are out of time, so we want to thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams, and uh, want to thank you. Please uh, spread the word, leave us a review, visit social media on our behalf, and say hello. And until next time, my friends, you know how I always like to say, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, 
Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 